Hello, friends, and thank you so much for being with us on episode eight of the Reconstructing Prayer podcast. This is our final, yes, I said it, final episode of season one. We will be back with a season two with new guests, new conversations, and new subjects, which I'm excited about. But in order for you to get to those episodes, you need to subscribe to the podcast. So make sure and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Also, rating and reviewing the show would be super helpful. It helps get the word out and uh, share the podcast with a wider audience. So make sure and do that as well if you do not mind. But today, you're getting an episode from the Spiritual Formation Podcast with yours truly, and Nathan Williams, the, the host of that podcast, interviewed me about my book. We get into a lot of the subjects we talked about so far within the season and then even some others. So make sure and, uh, again, subscribe to the podcast, rate, review it, but also enjoy this episode from Nathan Williams and the Spiritual Formation podcast. Make sure and go over to his podcast and subscribe to that as well. There's lots of great episodes and he's going to continue to release contents every month. So make sure and do that. Thanks so much for being on, and let's go ahead and get right to the episode. We're actually blessed when we're having it out with God, and we get his touch that marks us, right? So like Jacob walks away with a limp as his result, and I think that when we're when we wrestle with God in these ways over, over things that are not going right— even though we may walk away with a limp, we can still call ourselves blessed because we've we've been marked by God. We've met God in the midst of that difficulty. And he's able to then transform it into an encounter with him that brings clarity. Maybe not all the answers we want, but it brings us uh, to a place of able to walk with him in it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Formation Podcast, a place where we have conversations that lead to transformation. Before we get into our conversation for today, I would like to share a little bit about our guest. I will be interviewing author, pastor, and writer, Andrew Williams. While Andrew is an accomplished theologian and thinker, he also just so happens to be my brother. He has just recently released a new book entitled Reconstructing Prayer, Beyond Deconstructing Your Faith. But before getting into his new book, I want to provide a brief picture of who Andrew is. Andrew currently serves as the lead pastor of Church on the Hill in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. He has served as an adjunct professor for numerous universities. He holds a PhD in theology from Bangor University in Wales. He has published many articles, numerous books, but most impressively, Andrew is a man of deep character, wisdom, and integrity, and he has served a vital role in my own spiritual formation as a follower of Jesus. I'm so excited for you to hear from Andrew today, and if you enjoy this conversation as much as I think you will, you're going to definitely want to head over um, to his podcast that he hosts, uh, which is called the Reconstructing Prayer Podcast. Give that a listen. I know you'll be blessed by it. So without any further delay, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to the Spiritual Formation Podcast. Today, I have with me author, pastor, 
theologian and my own flesh and blood, uh, Andrew Williams. Welcome, Andrew. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks, Nathan. Well, before we begin today um, and, and dive into your new book, I would love it if you would just share a little bit about your personal faith journey. Obviously, I have insider view. You are my older brother, um, so I've gotten to watch some of that play out, but um, I think it's always just helpful for people to sort of know a little bit about who you are personally before they begin to hear some of your insight. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I grew up in a Christian family and uh, had a really good childhood. I think I loved Jesus from an early age. I was really fortunate to be um, in a family where faith was taken really seriously. And so I remember when I was about – I actually talk about this a little bit in the book, but when I was five, I remember having – this prompting, this urge, whatever you really want to call it, to to really accept Jesus into my heart, you know, as I would have put it then. So I pray with with my parents and our parents, I should say, and then um, was baptized later. And so, uh, but as you know, that's that's not when that's not when my journey, of course, ends. It's it's only the beginning, especially when you grow up in the church and you. Church is a part of your life, and you become a Christian at an early age. Um, throughout my young adult and teenage years, there was various points where I really started to own my own faith. Um, I found faith relatively easy when I was young, um, but it actually wasn't until I got a little bit older where I realized um, believing and following Jesus is a little bit harder sometimes than you initially think as a child. Um, so when you're saying, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life, of course, it's kind of like marriage. Like You have no idea what that actually means of when course. you say idea. I do. Right. Um, it's the same thing when you're a kid, you know, kind of committing to Jesus. And so I found myself, um, you know, in this, in this salvation journey of, of continuing to work out my salvation with fear and trembling and, um, you know, that's that's kind of to get into kind of the book. That's why I wrote this book. It's it's part autobiography, a little bit about how I kind of worked out um, some of the difficulties of what it means to wrestle through issues with God, uh, but how I found it to actually be something that was incredibly fruitful for my own life and fruitful for uh, my life in Christ and something that I'm hoping I can exhort people towards it being fruitful for them as well. That's great. That's super, super helpful. I I would love to just go ahead and start talking about um, the book itself, which is entitled uh, Reconstructing Prayer. And um, to get us started, um, could you take just a minute and um, give everyone just a brief overview of what the book is about and, and why you felt compelled to write it in the way that you did. Yeah, I – okay, so I guess let me start here. You know, I think about this very unique, maybe even odd passage in the Old Testament where Jacob is – you know, he's – He's a trickster. He's a deceiver. Um, but just as he 
was tricked. He tricked and deceived. He was tricked and deceived by his uncle Laban. He's estranged from his brother. His brother is coming at him with an army of people he finds out. And he has two wives that can't get along. His life's sort of a wreck. And, but he's, you know, has this blessing for his life from God. And God has a plan for his life. But he finds himself in the middle of the wilderness, scared about dying from his brother at the hands of his brother. And we have this very odd scene where he begins wrestling with a man in the middle of the night. And it ends up that this this man he's wrestling with is God. And so all night he's wrestling with God, and he ends up getting his, his uh, actually getting a painful uh, injury from it, and that's going to affect the rest of his life. But even in the midst of this, this difficult wrestling, he ends up um, holding on for his whole life and says, I won't let go until you bless me. And as odd as this passage means, and has as many layers as it has and how many different interpretations and readings it can provide, one thing that I take away from this is that inevitably in our spiritual lives, if we are going to be following God, and if we're going to be moving into a place where being sensitive to where God is taking us, we're going to begin at some point wrestling with God. The question is, are we going to hold on until we receive the blessing of it? Because so often, I think that we come in these points in our lives as Christians trying to follow Jesus, and we either just tap out of the fight and just give up and either just kind of ignore the difficulty that we're going through, whether it's an intellectual difficulty, a relational difficulty, a spiritual, God has let us down. Life hasn't played out the way that we've wanted it to. And so we just kind of ignore it and move on, or we become disillusioned and it begins to affect the closeness we have with God. Or like one in every two young person that grows up in the church, we begin wrestling with God and then walk away. Yeah. And so, you know, the reason I kind of wrote this book is to say, in fact, wrestling with God is actually a good thing. And that if we will actually hold on, there is a blessing on the other side of it, right? And I think that the church can be that place, or it should be at that place, where we can model what it means to wrestle with God in our relationships with with God. Um, but so often people kind of go to TikTok, or they or they go to social media, or they uh, they don't feel like it's appropriate to do that within the church, so they begin to do it outside the church, and they just completely unravel, deconstruct their beliefs about God. But I think that there's a more fruitful way of, of actually doing this in a mode of prayer, a mode of contemplation that can actually lead to not a demolished faith, but a renewed faith. And that's kind of the heart of my book, is that wrestling with God is good. It can lead to a blessing if done in an attitude of, yes, um, authenticity, honesty, but, but an attitude of prayer. Um, and I think that that it can be incredibly fruitful that way. What, what you just stated there is key, in my opinion, because of the fact that even looking at Jacob 
we see that it's actually not until he's dealing with um, the the pain in his life and the discomfort of wrestling with God that he gets honest with God. Mm-hmm. That's and it's right. in that moment where he actually says, God, what I really want is to be blessed. And that's the whole reason for the deception with his brother in the first place. He was trying to get blessed through his own strength and means. And I think that there's something there about what you're saying that um, if we want to actually become the people that God's called us to become, we have to get into that uncomfortable place with God and get really honest. And that's what your book does, because it's talking about not just reconstructing faith, but reconstructing prayer. And mm-hmm. prayer is that 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 place of communication. Um, I, one of the things I loved most about your book is that each chapter starts off with uh, a modest children's prayer. And while every chapter begins in that way, you, you also do this wonderful job of using that prayer um, as a springboard into a much larger conversation. And, and it seems to me that part of the motivation for that is that we ought to become people who don't just commit to praying more. I think that's often the motivation for Christians is, oh, I just need to pray more often than I am right now. But part of what I think you're doing that is so helpful is you're, you're revealing that the commitment is not just to pray more, but to pray deeply and examine our motivations in prayer, our assumptions about prayer. So could you talk a little bit about why it's so necessary for us to move beyond seeing prayer as as just this mechanism for getting what we want, or seeing prayer as some sort of ritual that we're using to please God? I guess, yeah, I, I guess the question is this. Let, let me just say it a little more clearly. How do our beliefs about God affect our communication with God? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, let me let me start here. Um, you know, when I when we say the word prayer, you know, a typical Christian will think of a kind of very limited activity, a very narrow view of, you know, someone maybe folding their hands, bowing their head, and asking God to do something. Um, but in the in Scripture, prayer, and actually in the Christian tradition, prayer is something much larger than that. Like you know, think of what Paul says is pray without ceasing. Of course, if, if, if all prayer is, is specifically sitting down uninterrupted with our eyes closed, with our hands folded, heads bowed, we're not going to be able to pray without ceasing, right? We're going to have to set aside very specific time to do this kind of activity. And um, so the kind of prayer that I'm hoping to put forward is kind of a, a bigger, grander view of what it means to live a prayerful life. You know, there's this guy, his name's Brother Lawrence, and he worked as a monk in Paris um, in the 1600s. And he talks about prayer as a habitual sense of God's presence, like just being completely aware all the time that God is a God that is, he's He's here, he's, he's close, he's close to the next breath. And so rather than limiting prayer to focus times of like asking God to do something, petitioning him or interceding for a need. Um, he's, he's kind of putting forward prayer as this ongoing habitual sense of a secret conversation with God and the soul mm. and on a moment by moment basis. Right? So this means rather than um, it's, it's, it's prayer isn't just something we do sometimes 
here and there, but prayer is something that we can actually move into on a moment-by-moment basis. And he actually says this. He says, um, as for my set hours of prayer, like, you know, his set hours of prayer, the kind of prayer that we're usually used to, he said, they're only a continuation of the same exact exercise that I'm doing all the time, which is just being aware of God's presence, practicing his presence. And so within this framework, thinking about God, wrestling with God, uh, approaching difficult questions and posing them to God can actually be a prayerful activity. So it's not as if, you know, because so oftentimes we can get like, sidetracked on in our minds about and, and about things we're we're dealing with like we have big questions like god where were you when this and this and this happened and when we inevitably begin to go into this state of of wrestling with these questions it can be easy to stop praying for instance we get disillusioned with prayer but actually that can thrust us into prayer before god honest prayer before god where god can actually begin to meet us transform us to kind of go back to what you said responded to my last question, you know, you said something along the lines of um, that that it's not until we're thrust into difficult situations that we can actually begin to really find our footing with God, something along those lines. I think, I think, I think that, you know, oftentimes when we think about being blessed, like, you know, hashtag blessed, you see an Instagram photo, it's like someone with their with their Bible open and a hot cup of coffee. And it's like, everything's simple. Everything's peaceful. Like everything's easy with God. Hashtag I'm blessed. Right. But in fact, what we find with Jacob is that we're actually blessed when we're having it out with God and we get his touch that marks us. Right. So like Jacob walks away with a limp as is his result. And I think that when we're when we wrestle with God in these ways over over things that are not going right, even though we may walk away with a limp, we can still call ourselves blessed because we've we've been marked by God. We've met God in the midst of that difficulty, and He's able to then transform it into an encounter with Him that brings clarity. Maybe not all the answers we want, but it brings us uh, to a place of able to walk with Him in it. Yeah. And we know that, that there is a um just an inseparable sort of link um in our in our spirituality to um our theology. And this is actually what you say in your in the introduction of your book. You say, I learned that one's theology is always inseparably related to their spirituality. Another way of saying it is that I discovered the way I think about God profoundly impacts the way I live with and for God. And to me, it seems like that is a hurdle for so many of us. Um, we stumble over repetitiously. Um, it really does not matter how much zealous, um, passion we have in, in our prayer lives. If the God that we're praying to is not the God that Jesus reveals. So we can have lots of discipline. We can have all sorts of ideas about what it means to, I think you use the word petition, which is familiar for many of us who are churched. Um, but what can we actually do to become more aware of our own misconceptions to God um, as we come to him in prayer? Because I think it's as we deal with those misconceptions 
that our prayer life becomes less of a, oh, wow, I ought to do that, um, to a genuine place of desire to just experience God in, in the raw moments of life. So how, how do we do that? What are, what are some of the things that we can do um, to actually even become aware of the misconceptions we're carrying? Hmm. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're definitely right in the fact that whatever we view as, as kind of the, the telos of our life, the end goal of our life, that's what we're going to begin to move towards. It's how we're going to live. It's how we're going to just do everything in light of that. And so whatever we think about, whatever envision we have of the good life, um, is going to majorly influence our life. And of course, if you're serving God and you, and you claim that God is the way to the good life, then our understanding of who that God is, is going to majorly impact the way we live. And so this is why it was so ironic about people who are like, look, I'm all about Jesus. I'm all about loving God and worshiping and spirituality is important to me. But this whole theology thing, like, Gosh, it's just it's just a waste of time. Because what we're seeing is the fact that, like, okay, uh, our understanding of who God is majorly impacts all of those things. And yes. in fact, whatever kind of image we 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 have of God is ultimately the image in which we are going to be formed. And right. so this is this is pretty hugely important. And so that's why, like, for instance, in my book, I talk about how. God is both good and great. So oftentimes, you know, like one of the things I tackle in there is when people say like, oh, well, you know, God sent this disaster to kill all these people uh, because of this and this and this reason. Well, God is good and he, he, he's not the author of evil, right? And so, but if we think he's the author of evil, then it is sure easier to justify our own evils, and yes. so the way that we think about God, the way we pray to God is intimately connected. And so that's why I'm trying to bring these, these couple things together. Um, so, so yeah, I think that um, I think that's incredibly important. It's one of the most important things we actually can do for our lives is to, to begin to search out who God is. You know, um, I'm going to totally butcher this quote, but, but, I, but there was a mystical writer, his name, her name's Teresa of Avila, and she once said something like this, like, we will never be able to know ourselves if we don't endeavor to know God, because who we are is wrapped up in who God is. And so throughout all these kind of, these chapters, you know, what I'm hoping to do is helping kind of peel back the onion of who is who is the God that Jesus reveals, because inevitably that's going to influence the if we want to pray to this God, if we want to live for this God, right. and how all of that shakes out um, is going to be intimately tied to, to again who this God is. Yeah, I, I remember um, you know growing up. Obviously, we we did together. Grew up in our home church, and um, <laughs> I, I remember when I we would always have these cards in Sunday school that would show pictures of, of the Bible stories and things that we were seeing. And I remember, you know, growing up in uh, North America, Western culture, Jesus was Caucasian. 
Um, and he had a Absolutely. certain look about him and all art I'd ever seen of Jesus was Jesus as a white Caucasian male. Um, I remember, uh, actually, you know, you know, later on seeing what would be probably more accurate representations of Jesus in his physical body as a brown Israelite man. And even as a kid, I still have that, that experience in my mind because I think that that's, that's a very, um, probably shallow example, but it's, it's what needs to be happening all the time in our, in our own hearts and minds is that we need to, we need to take a hard look at the Jesus we are believing in and actually ask the question, is this the Christ or is this my own construct of the Christ? Um, and as we do that, I think that's when we begin to actually um, become more faithful, more authentic, more um, more set apart as, as his actual followers rather than just, I'm going to follow the version of Jesus that most suits me and uh, most yeah. aligns with my priorities, most aligns with um, giving me an amen on the life that I'm, I'm naturally trying to seek. So yeah, I, can I respond to that? Cause I, yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. that's, I think that's key. So I think we have this, this idea that somehow that, that, that our beliefs about God, you know, just should be very, very simple and that it's totally not only acceptable, but actually preferable and totally um, sane to think that we've captured the whole of who God is just really early on. And somehow, you know, challenging those beliefs, um, we're just, you know, we're just, we're making it complicated when it shouldn't be. But, you know, I mean, God is, God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ right? Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. Uh, but since God is infinite, there's an infinite amount of ways and qualities about God that, that take a lifetime to realize. And not, we couldn't even realize at all. So the whole idea that you know, you, you finally realize like later, oh, Jesus isn't like, doesn't look like me. He's actually a Jew. He's not, you know, Anglo. Um, you know, that's just a small picture of, of how we should kind of be growing up over time throughout our lives, right? That it's, yes. it's totally and completely sane and natural to begin to see more and more and more of who God actually is as we get to know him more. You know, I mean, I know this is, you can't just, uh, relate our relationship with God to human relationships perfectly, but they can serve as a good illustration. You know, I think about my wife, I, I learn more and more and more about Anna all the time, even though I feel like I've had her, I have her figured out. (laughs) Anyone married know that you really don't have the other person figure out because humans are complex creatures. And if we're created creatures who are very complex, how much more complex is the creator and how much more, well, we need to continue to realize um, the beauty, the goodness, and the truth, and how, and that takes a, a lifetime to begin to even journey into, begin to scratch the surface. And so, I think that um, having this this humility, this openness about um, God is bigger than even our constructs. God is so much bigger and better than our minds and our hearts can even begin to wrap ourselves around. Um, so it's a good thing to grow, right? 
growth and our Absolutely. knowledge is good. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's the same sort of thing with, um, you know, insecurity in any relationship causes us to be reactive and, um, we can be insecure in our relationship with God. Uh, so Mm -hmm. if, if we're insecure and the, our faith is in our beliefs about God rather than in the risen Christ, then we're not going to be open to actually pursuing truth for the sake of truth. We're going to be more interested in protecting that, which we already have. Yeah. And that's not the call of the Christian life. The, the call of the Christian life is to constantly be holding loosely um, the non-essentials where, where God can reshape and mold us, but holding tightly to the essentials. So I want to, I want to talk to you about some specific chapters because um, I think we've been talking generally, which is helpful, but I also want to give um, folks a good picture of sort of some of the paths that you take your reader on throughout the book. So in chapter two, you talk about uh, the theme of God's hospitality. And the prayer that starts chapter two is one I think that many Christians um, who grew up in church are probably familiar with. And it's very short, simple. It's come Lord Jesus, be our guest and let this food to us be blessed. Amen. My two-year-old uh, says a version of this prayer regularly. And from this prayer, you, you talk about how rather than God being a guest in our world, and we're inviting him to come and, and inhabit what we're already doing, theologically, it's actually right for us to say that we're guests in his world. You, you talk about how um, the people who have experienced God's rescue have not only been saved from something, but for something. And and I think we can be pretty quick to answer what it is that we've been saved from. You know, we've been saved from sin, from death, hell, and so on. But I think it is a revolutionary thought, um, something that we can't miss and gloss over, that we have actually not just been saved from something, but for something. So I wanted to tee you up to talk a little bit about that, um, because I just think it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this, this prayer... You know, the first thing I noticed in it is it's come Lord Jesus, be our guest as if we are the host and God is guest. Now I'm very familiar with this and you are too. And probably most of our listeners will be as well that oftentimes when we pray, uh, we think that we're inviting God to be a part of something we're doing. So like I think about, you know, worship services that, you know, we grew up in where, you know, you hear people say, oh my goodness, like, man, God came, right? He God showed up. Sh- God showed up. Right. And um, rather than seeing like when we when we begin to worship, we are actually entering into God's presence rather than him entering into ours. Yes. And so, and I think this leads to this, this life of, of um, thinking that we're mostly in charge of our spiritual lives, that like God has saved us. But ultimately, he saved us, and now the work's up to us. And so we're living the Christian life, and then we're asking God to do things for us as we go about it. Rather than seeing our whole entire life held together by God, gifted to us, um, we've been saved from death, but he's gifted us not just freedom um, from sin, but freedom for a new life, and freedom in a life that is empowered by him from beginning to end. So... He's the host. He's hosting us with his presence. We're the guest. And yet, at the same time, oddly enough, we he does make us into hosts. He makes us into hosts 
of his presence, right? Not that we're actually hosting God, but that he's hosting us so we can begin to host other people, right? So that we're actually carrying God's presence um, because he's filling us up with it. And we are drawing in other people because of it. And so this leads us to see that like we're not – our lives, our spiritual lives are not just up to us, which when we think it's up to us, um, man, that's really damaging. It really does provide this sense of like uh, sort of this deist God, that God kind of saved us, but then he's kind of up in heaven and he's just kind of like wanting us to be good people. He's wanting us to kind of do good spiritual things rather than that – God is actually hosting his presence in us by his spirit and as a result empowering us from the inside to live the kind of life that he desires for us and he desires for us to bring to others. So good. I it's it's beautiful and I think in the words of Paul in Colossians it's you know Christ is all in all. It's it's that all life, all breath, everything beautiful in creation is wrapped up in Christ and sustained and held together by him. And that includes us. That includes our salvation. It includes every part of our lives. And I want to, I want to link this to something else that, that may not seem all that interrelated at first, but I, I fully believe it is. And that issue is how our, let's talk a little bit about our readings of scripture. Um, how our particular interpretations of the Bible can at times be more harmful than helpful to us in our prayer lives. And you use this example in the book of theologians who used scripture to challenge Copernicus when he proved that the sun rather than the earth was at the center of the universe. Most of us have likely experienced the pain and the confusion of finding out that something we once believed to be true about God, or we once held a conviction about a certain passage of scripture, a certain interpretation of that passage that later we found out is actually not the best reading or it's not actually true at all about God. So how can we move away from placing our utmost confidence in our particular interpretations of what the Bible says or what scripture says and instead move towards a life that has the utmost confidence in the God of scripture? Um, how can we balance humility and belief with confidence in, in who God is? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I think there's a few things here. Like first, you know, I think that for me, I have a very high view of Scripture. Um, I believe Scripture, like I just do. I have a very high view of Scripture. Um, and... I think that sometimes people believe they have a high view of scripture, um, but they're not, they're not fully embracing the kind of authority scripture carries. So let me say it this way. Like sometimes we trust scripture more than we do God. So when it comes to like the Copernicus thing, you know, one of the things I bring up is, is that this whole issue of um, we, we live in an age of, of science. We live in an age where um, scientists are working and telling us, you know, we're learning a lot about God's creation. And a lot of Christians um, are 
really balk up against scientific advances because we read scripture in a particular way. And we have confused at some points our readings of scripture or our interpretations with scripture with scripture itself. So for instance, we'll, they'll say, well, no, we can't believe X, Y, and Z because scripture says X, Y, and Z. When scripture may not say X, Y, and Z, we just, that's our interpretation of it. So we can have a high view of scripture, but we should have a low view of our interpretations of it. That's so good. And so sometimes they can actually keep us from discovering the God whom the scriptures speak of, right? Because yeah. scripture is not a means, it, it, scripture is a means to an end, right? Scripture is holy scripture because it leads us to the holy one. And so scripture, it should be, it really is the is the is the revelation that, that leads us to the ultimate revelation, which is God. And so, you know, that's one thing I think that oftentimes, like when it comes to, you know, uh, the early chapters of Genesis I talk about, oftentimes people have really felt like they are, um, they have to grind it out in these culture wars with, 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 with scientific advancements. When in fact, sometimes they're, they're reading scripture in a way that the biblical authors never intended it for, to be read. So as pre-scientific people, we, they're not writing a scientific text. They're writing a theological, deeply inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired theological text that tells us so much about who God is, the kind of world he put us into. But again, it's we're looking for things that aren't in there because that's not the way the the, the kinds of things that God seemed to be interested in putting in there. And yeah. so he seemed to 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 begin to gift us with a world that is meant to be explored, meant to be understood. But again, I think we have to deconstruct the tendencies to equate our interpretations of scripture with scripture itself, because that can get us into trouble and very very quickly into thinking that somehow um, we just we just have it all figured out and there's no there's no room for discussion on these important issues. Yeah, I love what you said there. I, one of the most profound revelations that I took away from your book is what you talk about at the end of chapter four, which is entitled "Protected by God." So I want us to think for a minute about the journey of spiritual formation. And as we do that, uh, we remind ourselves that it is a daily discipline as we become more and more aware of what our motivations are for wanting to grow in Christ. Um, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, the, the, the likelihood is that you want to grow in Jesus. And I think you, I want to read what you said at the end of this chapter because you say it so well. You say, moving from infancy to maturity does not mean we move on from dependence, but rather toward it. Maturity in Christ is marked by a true recognition of how dependent we truly are. Only then can we begin <clears throat> to taste and see that the Lord is good. Despite the difficulty, only then can we sense the presence of God with us until the very end of the age. And only then 
can we begin to live into the mission and service that God has for us? You know, that that seems to grate, at least for me, against every cell in my body. You know, we don't mature in Jesus so that we're able to live more reliant upon ourselves because we're stronger and therefore we can do more. And, and it's actually just the inverse of that. We attempt to mature more in Jesus so that we can become more aware of how utterly dependent we are on him. Can you just unpack maybe some of the implications of that a little further? What what keeps us from living in a constant state of dependence upon God through prayer? I think that the the thing that keeps us from living dependent upon God is we have a faulty view of what maturity looks like in the spiritual life. So in our culture, someone who is mature or capable means that they don't need any help, that they are fully capable within themselves. And so and think about like the typical um, – this kind of the typical understanding of someone who is really free in our culture. It's someone who has no ties. It's someone who is completely autonomous that has – that can do whatever he or she wants whenever he or she wants to do it. Um, but scripture actually doesn't talk about freedom this way. You know, Galatians 5.1 says that it is for freedom that you were set free. And so we were saved for freedom. We didn't have it before. We maybe had autonomy. We may, we may had like a certain kind of freedom, which enables us to say yes or no to certain situations, but not the kind of freedom that is found only in Christ. And freedom is actually something that restricts us, right? So if you think about spiritual formation and spiritual formation practices, they are restrictions that bring freedom. Yes. And so if you think about maturity, it's not becoming more and more – It's not. Well, let me put it this way. Spiritual maturity is not becoming more and more capable – of living a good life that is free of all constraints. It's not becoming more capable in that way. Becoming spiritually mature means that we become more and more reliant upon God because God is the one filling us up with his strength to live the kind of life that he's called us to do. And so we're able to become more Christ-like, not because we're becoming better people, in and of ourselves, but because we are receiving, we're open more to receiving the kind of filling that God fills us with to do the type of things that Jesus did. For my last question, I want to reference your last chapter, which, uh, as I've already told you in private, just so happens to be my favorite chapter in the book. Uh, and in this final chapter called Surrounded by God, you very early on in the chapter, you talk about Stephen Freeman's depiction of this, this two-story universe and how we often view that we are, quote, down here and God is somehow, quote, up there. And through prayer, we're attempting to get our thoughts, our words, our, our concerns from one place to another. And you challenge that thinking with the fact that part of formation in Jesus is not just how we connect with God, like the example being, let's pray but what what we think about him. So how does a biblical perspective of God's rightful proximity to us um, unleash 
a new kind of prayer life, a revolution in our in our communication with God? Yes, great question. Yeah, I think you know this Stephen Freeman's um you referenced Stephen Freeman's two-story universe view and I think this is exactly exactly what most of us tend to believe about the way God interacts with us. Like he talks about how we live on here the first floor, right, on earth where things are simply things and everything operates according to normal, natural laws, while God lives in heaven upstairs and is largely removed from the story in which we live. And to actually do much of anything here, God kind of has to interrupt the laws of nature and perform a miracle, right? And this is super widespread among contemporary Christians. This is kind of like the vision of reality that, that, I, that I had, right, for the longest time. The problem with it, it creates this significant um, division between where God is and where we are. And ultimately, it ends up uh, enabling us making separating some parts of our lives into sacred spaces and other places that are sort of secular places. And because that's ultimately what God has done. God has this realm where he's at, the supernatural realm. And we have this natural realm where we live in. And so there's this kind of this split universe in this view. Um, you know, unanswered prayers become super um, common because we say like, oh, yeah, that just didn't get beyond the ceiling, right? It's yeah. – there's this – God, I guess, just wasn't listening today. He was somewhere else. Um, but – you know, one of the things that I think that Scripture shows us is that there is no place where God doesn't inhabit. You know, I think about like Psalm 139. It yeah. says that, you know, where can I go from your spirit? Um, or where can I flee from your presence? The implication is I can't because God is everywhere, right? He's the constant presence before, beside, between us. Um, God's all around us. And if this is the case, there really is no secular, sec, sacred secular split. The Spirit of God is has enveloped all things, mm-hmm. and he's closer than our next breath. And so he's not just uninvolved in the world. He's incredibly involved in the world. He's sustaining the world. And nothing will go on without God being involved. And so I think the implications are, are pretty huge. I think that sometimes um, – we can kind of just, again, live our lives as if God's up there, I'm up here, and then, you know, I'll go to church to reach up up there. Maybe when I'm in trouble, I'll pray God to come down here and do something for me. Rather than, again, having this kind of prayer, this this prayerful living where God is closer than next breath, that he's with us, that he's moving us, that he is available to us, and that uh, not only is he somewhere out there, but he's everywhere around here. Such a good perspective, Andrew. I, I, I think that that is sort of something that undergirds a very, very common misconception about God. And as we challenge that, we're, we're sort of invited into um, a new reality where God isn't separate from the mundane. He's actually very much in it. And we can, we can celebrate that. We can do all of the, 
the small things, the large things, the the joyful things, the painful things, all of them with Jesus. And yeah, it's a comforting I, thing. It is. And if I can say, like, I think we see this ultimately in Jesus. Like Jesus took on the mundane flesh and blood of humanity and shows us that God deeply cares about about the stuff of creation. He cares about um, he cares about us. And I think ultimately when we view life the other way, that somehow things are, are super separate, uh, I think this creates this, this whole idea that we are not um, – I don't know, that, that, that God – God is not with us in the, the difficulties that like we're, we're constantly waiting for him to do something in our lives, mm-hmm. um, that we're, we're waiting for him to break through whatever it is that, that because he's absent, ultimately if things are not going well, he's absent and he needs to reach down and do something. Rather than seeing that Jesus shows us that he does not m- mind at all getting in the mess and the suffering and the difficulty of humanity. And so I think it makes a huge difference um, also in our lives of where we see God in the midst of any difficulty we're going through. I, I know that this book uh, has challenged me in my own prayer life, and I know it will for every single person that's listening to this as well. And so I just want to take a minute and encourage you, if, if you're listening today and you're, you're being challenged by some of these ideas— um, I want to just encourage you to pick up a copy of Andrew's latest book, Reconstructing Prayer. Um, It's available on Amazon. Um, I know because that's where I bought it. And uh, I know you can get it also directly from Cascade Books. uh, And you'll be glad that you did. So, Andrew, again, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, just just give your insight. And uh, it's it's always fun talking. Always a privilege. Thanks, bro. Appreciate your time, man. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Formation Podcast, where we have conversations that lead to transformation. For more information about the show or share it with others, please visit rss.com slash podcast slash SFP for a direct link. If you found today's episode helpful, please consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening through. Thank you.